Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. In today's episode, Atalia Omer, professor of religion, conflict, and peace studies at the Croc Institute, facilitates a conversation on global interreligious peacebuilding efforts. It includes a discussion of strengths, potential challenges, and the philosophy behind these efforts. This conversation was recorded in November 2019 during the Institute's Building Sustainable Peace Conference. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Crocast. I'm Atalia Omer, and I'm joined by several colleagues today for a conversation about interreligious peacebuilding work and scholarship. Our discussions for today include Neil Bolton, 2003 graduate of the Kroc Institute's master program, who now works as the senior technical advisor for justice and peacebuilding with Catholic Relief Services, CRS. Rashid Omar, also a 2001 master's alumni at the Kroc Institute, who serves as a research scholar of Islamic studies and peacebuilding here at Notre Dame. He is also an imam in his native South Africa. Hippolyte Poole, Executive Director at the Institute of Peace and Development in Ghana. So, welcome to each one of you, and thanks for joining us. The first question that I want to pose to all of you is, what is religious about interreligious and intra-religious peacebuilding? Maybe we'll start with you, Rashid. Yeah, so uh, it's um, about the faith commitment. It's about a form of dialogue as well that we call the dialogue of spirituality where you're drawing on your inner spiritual resources, reaching out and touching, as we say in Islam, the ruh, the spirit of the other. So it's not merely just an ordinary dialogue where you're just wanting to meet someone else, but you really want to get to know the other person, what we would call ta'aruf, a deeper kind of relationship building than a mere acquaintance. That's what I understand to be dialogue from a religious point of view. Can you maybe, um, before we turn to, to other participants, maybe you, if you can say a few more words about what you just described, it seems to me the spirituality and the religiosity that you understand the very engagement in interreligious peace building or interreligious dialogue. What does it mean then in terms of scholarship? In terms of scholarship, it would mean to be able to concretely, through empirical evidence, try to capture the nature of the relationship. So it's, it's all about the relationship between individuals, between communities. And of course, it's difficult to measure that. It's all about measuring constructive relationships. And in that sense, it doesn't mean that the relationship should be without any conflict or any challenges. Also, it tries to measure in terms of scholarship how people, whether they are religious, whether they are non-religious, how they would deal with challenges or conflicts in terms of the relationship. And for me, the litmus test of inter-religious peace building is the extent to which the dogmas, the beliefs, the rituals enables helps the individual to reach out to the other. And sometimes 
someone may be able to do that without a religious philosophy. He has a worldview, something else that sustains them you know, to reach out and to embrace the other as an extension of one's own humanity. Okay, great. Neil, do you want to respond to the question, what is religious about interreligious peace building and maybe also reflect on the scholarship question? Sure. You know, I think in interreligious peace building, people are bringing their religious identities on a personal level as well as a group and a communal level into the peace building space. And through interreligious peace building are able to draw on the full array of resources from their religious traditions, so the spirituality, as well as the teachings, as well as the traditions and the customs and the rituals, and also the institutions and the organizations and that broader networks to the table. And so keeping that in mind and, and also reflecting on what's already been shared, I really like the way that Dr. Omer framed it in terms of measuring the extent to which one's own religious resources are enhancing and enabling the connection and the ability to build healthy relationships with those who are the religious other. Hippolyte, do you want to reflect on this? Yes, I'd like to go back to where Dr. Omer left off by saying it comes from within. It might not actually be based on your religion because uh, coming from the Af African perspective, Culture is so much intertwined with religion that you cannot even distinguish it from what is religious. So if you're looking at religious peace building for the dimensions of institutionalized religion, that might be different from looking at religion for the personal beliefs. So it comes from within. And people are predisposed because of their internal beliefs to reach out to the other, to forgive, to let go. And that in itself is what comes out of it. So when you have in the context where Institutionalized religion is not a part, but you still have this willingness to get out there and reach out to the other and say, let's go, forgive, forget, and let's move on. Okay, so specifically on this last point, but also connecting to some of the other points that were made by um, maybe Rashid in particular, it sounds that you are putting a lot of emphasis on individual self-transformation and, for instance, concepts that are actually highly Christian of forgiveness and, and so forth. How would you respond to someone who would say that this is burdening the individual and individual self-transformation too much, considering other questions about structural violence, cultural violence, political violence, global violence, and other forms of historical injustice that manifest themselves in people's daily life? Essentially, we have to look at the concept of religion from the worldview of the people that you're talking about. So if you look at it in a context where relationships are priced over anything else, so that I am who I am because of the location I am in the cultural setting, that predisposition to keep relationships right at all times is there. So the question of burden doesn't actually come to me. And in fact, that burden is absorbed by the community and not the individual. So if I had a conflict with her, for instance, it might not just be the two of us trying to sort out our differences. It's assumed by the community. So it's her people versus and my people who are trying to resolve that because the relationship is between the communities. So it's not about burdening the individual as much. And then we have to look at it from the cultural context. What do people believe is important for them? So even if we go for that forgiveness, it does become a burden on me. And in fact, people see that as a way of relief. You offload that burden from your person. That need to revenge, that need to, to write things by yourself, from yourself, and give it to the community, give it to God, or give it to somebody else. So you externalize that. 
And that in itself is a way of healing for the individual and for the society as a whole. And I think that for me, that question that you posed, Atalia, is partly why it is so important in interreligious peace building to engage the structures and the organizations and the institutions to sort of tap into the broader religious community, both at leadership levels, but also in terms of sort of the broader collection of those who are co-religionists together, because it's kind of through those mechanisms that some of the broader shifts can happen or some of the engagement with structures and systems can happen around questions of equity and belonging and so forth. But at the same time, in our work at CRS, we do still put an emphasis on, at the same time, simultaneously, the personal healing and tapping into one's own spiritual resources and well-being because it's not dissimilar from the notion that a peace agreement at a high level doesn't translate necessarily into peace on the ground. No matter what might be happening at sort of leadership and structural levels, we're not going to have healthy relationships without sort of individuals who are also primed and ready and prepared for that too. Yeah, I I would say that when you originally asked what is religious, I started off with the spirituality. And I think that's the starting point. It doesn't mean that that's the end all of, of the story. But often if you start off with dialogue as being, for example, dialogue in action, challenging social structures, you instrumentalize religion in a sense that you know, that's not the starting point. Uh, the starting point should be drawing on your inner. Because what, what eventually happens is that when you have an extrinsic reason for dialogue, when that common problem vanishes, then what's the reason for you reaching out to the other, right? But if the reason for reaching out to the other comes from within a personal commitment, for example, we have teachings, who is God? And God would say that uh, on the day of judgment, I I was oppressed, I was sick, and you didn't come and, and, and heal me. And you would say, God, you are the Lord of the world. How can... And he says, if you had reached out to that individual person, you would have found me by his side. So it's not like looking for God all on your own. It is the concept in, in African philosophy that would, we would say Ubuntu. I am, not because I think, I am because you are, because we are. So in a sense, it is that connection with the other. And of course, the structures bear heavily on both our personal convictions and the relationships, but this is the balance between individual transformation and social transformation. Okay, so I would like to return to this point in a few minutes, but for now, maybe we can pause and go to give each one of you an opportunity to describe one of the most effective interreligious peace-building initiatives you've been a part of. That will be an opportunity to talk about your organization or your other kind of context of peace building, interreligious peace building work. So what made it effective? What particular challenges did you face and you continue to face in your work? Well, one of the things that I've learned doing interreligious peace building work is able to separate religious institutionalism from religion itself. And I say this because uh, coming from the African continent where I've seen a lot of this work, especially in the Central African Republic, you find out that and in my own country, Ghana, as well as in Liberia and Sierra Leone, you find out that where you can go beyond, and they make a distinction between the Abrahamic faiths and their indigenous African religious traditions, where you can go beyond the worldviews established by the Abrahamic faith, so where God is not possessed by exclusively, where the practice of religion is not exclusive 
but it's open and inclusive, then it allows people to transcend their current religious boundaries to be able to meet. So if, for instance, you go to Central African Republic, where the now a cardinal, is a Palenga, was able to reach out to a Muslim cleric, and the two of them were able to come together and say, okay, how do we fill this void in our national space where governments has collapsed, conflict is raging, and everybody that you interview in Central Africa will probably tell you, this conflict is not about religion. It's not religion. But the popular press say, oh, it's, it's Muslims versus Christians. They say, it's not, it's not about religion. But you have the reverse, where there are some clerics who are not able to transcend that boundary between institutionalized religion. And so they say, we will not be part of this because it's not what we do. But people have, or like Omar was saying internally, that this is part of what we should be doing as, an, as a human being anyway. Then the religious dimension, the religious position allows you now to build those bridges. Otherwise, if you're stuck to the institutionalized religion alone, then you might have positions that separate you. So what I have found very useful is when you are, you are able to break those boundaries and go beyond theology and dogmas and so forth and so on. So, okay, what is it that we are trying to do as humans? What is it that is good for us? What is it that calls us our spiritually to be? And that spirituality there allows you to set aside those dogmas that separate you, set aside those beliefs and practices that separate you to say, okay, what is it that we need to do that we believe is the call of God? And the go out for that. I think the example that I could share maybe comes at these questions from the opposite mm. end of the spectrum, thinking of the example of Bosnia-Herzegovina, where there's a certain frozenness in mm. divisions that are very much rooted in these in these structures. And so some of the work that CRS has done in partnership with the Interreligious Council in the country, as well as with other actors, has been to try to say, okay, how do we sort of go deeply into those existing structures and then find points of connection and bring people together, especially young people who have never known anything but a very segregated society. And so some of the approaches that have been used have been trying to help young people come to know one another's religious traditions, spaces, symbolism, rituals through initiatives that are called Days of Open Doors, where young people together with their religious leaders jointly circulate and visit one another's houses of worship in towns where they might be very living in close proximity, but not encountering one another in a significant way. And then at a sort of level of higher education, one initiative that I could sort of call forward is work that CRS did with the three theological faculties in the country. So the Catholic, the Orthodox, and the Muslim theological schools working through a process together of coming together and jointly agreeing to create a joint master's degree program in interreligious studies and peace building and providing young people with the opportunity to really more deeply know one another's religious resources for peace and know their own, as well as find practical ways to apply that in society as they move out into their careers in various sectors. Yeah, as I I, I spoke earlier about what I call a, a starting point, which is the dialogue of spirituality. I myself came to interreligious peace building through what I would call dialogue of action, which is challenging social structures during the late 80s and early 90s to a very vibrant and powerful interreligious solidarity movement struggling against the structural injustices 
of apartheid racism. And often we found each other in prisons and you had to dig deep in order to maintain your humanity. Sometimes someone would read a prayer to keep everyone uh, help. And sometimes someone who's not religious would read a poem just to inspire us and to maintain our humanity. It was a wonderful experience. But in 1994, after we had established a democratic, non-racial South African state, the interreligious movement began to wane. So the experience that I've had is that extrinsic reasons are often wonderful in getting the interreligious dialogue going, but in order to sustain it in the long term, one needs to find intrinsic inner reasons because once that uh, common enemy is gone, what is sustaining you? What is uh, motivating you to reach out to the other, to build constructive relationships in a society? So I, I would call that the dialogue of action. And if you come back, I mean, you know, we, we have dialogue of spirituality, we have dialogue of action, which is very much in vogue. But then the, the litmus test, as you would say, how do scholars measure, evaluate it? It's in terms of the dialogue of life, which means the everyday relationships between people of faith and people of, of, of no faith on the ground. How do they get along? And often people get along very well, and that's punctuated by periods of conflict, deadly conflict and violence and so on. But that's, for me, the key measurement of whether the dialogue of spirituality and the dialogue of action is in fact working. One question that they have, and perhaps uh, Nelly, you can respond to it first, since you've put a lot of thought into this question. Since institutional religious spaces and leadership spaces tend to be male spaces, how in your role as uh, working within the framework of Catholic Relief Services, in what ways and how did you work on including women and youth and other voices that are usually marginalized from quote-unquote religious spaces? Yeah, that's, it's a really, I think, important question for the sort of future directions as well for interreligious peace building. One of the things that we have done is to try to take a fairly inclusive understanding of who is a religious actor and who is a religious leader. And so we are in our work in seeking to lift up both men's and women's leadership and as well as the leadership of young people. We have been sort of looking for, you know, whose leadership can we cultivate and support and sustain in their religious identity, even if they do not hold a formal title. And so while there certainly are times and spaces where it makes sense to work with those who hold formal leadership positions in their religious traditions, we're always looking to complement that with opportunities to sort of work with those who actually function as religious leaders among their peers, in the case of many women, even if they're not doing so with a formal title. And so a lot of that work has been done in, for example, the work in the in Mindanao in the Philippines, identifying and cultivating women leaders, particularly as well among the indigenous uh, religious traditions as well, sometimes kind of moving into a more inclusive space religiously, also supports more inclusive notions of leadership uh, across gender lines. When it comes to the leadership of young people, we've kind of worked with several different models in different places, but the ones that seem to be the most successful in terms of supporting young people is when, even if the young people to be involved are initially selected by their religious leaders, uh, creating avenues for them to do their own analysis of their situation, plan their own activities and initiatives, and then set it up so that the adults are in more of a supporting 
an advising role, not a deciding and leading role for the young people, has created sort of more space for the youth leadership to flourish in ways that uh, both the youth and the adults are benefiting from. I think the point that Nell was making about finding the right spaces is important. I'm just part of a team that's winding up two years of evaluation for CMM in a CMM. Say what it is. <laughs> it's, it's Conflict <laughs> Mitigation and Management Unit of USAID in the Central African Republic and the Deep South of Thailand. And this question of spaces for youth and gender came out strongly. One of the things that you want to be very careful about is the do no harm principle. How do you not, uh, in the interest of creating spaces for some marginalized group, you rather end up creating more problems for them? So that's one of the areas that uh, even the USAID worries about. But the other key thing is that how do you find the right spaces for these people to be able to participate without having the institutional presence that we're looking for when we talk about participation or representation? For instance, most youth these days don't hang around the parish halls. You, you don't find them there. You know, they're, they're not around the parish halls waiting to encounter a priest or some other person. You find them in cyberspace. You find them in social media. How do you find those spaces and bring the youth together? When I was with CRS at one point, we did a IPA, and we chose to focus it on the youth. It's okay, come in and tell us what is that you can do to be part of peace building. It was very interesting to see a mix of religious groups that came, and it was very interesting to see how they could exploit their talents in drama, in music, in other things performative arts, which will not be available in the traditional religious peace-building settings, to be able to blend that and to see Muslims, in, in fact, uh, from Nigeria and Ghana and Sierra Leone working with Christians in, from those different countries, to create you know, themes and actions and drama and songs and so forth that preach that version of peace, what they want to see. It was amazing. But without that space... You know, if you wanted them to sit in a training room with the elders and so forth so that they, are, they feel included, you wouldn't find them there. Even if they came in there, they might just shut up. It's the same thing with women. How do you find the spaces that women can utilize more effectively to be effective instruments of peace building in their communities without having them sit at the same table with the, the, the men and so forth and so on? Some might say, well, you know, it's not really gender balance or whatever. But the, the key thing is, what do you want to do? Do you want this people to be active players in a peace building, or do you just want them to be representatives on a around a table where they really don't function? And that's, those are the critical questions that I ask myself. How do I create the spaces for more people to be more effective? And in Central African Republic, you find out that women find those spaces where even at the market, it's more effective to engage across religious lines, across ethnic lines, than if you had brought them together in a conference room. You know, so those are the things that I worry about. Yeah, so one of the questions on the level of scholarship, because many of you uh, speak very in a way that is very grounded in practice and some instances pragmatic concerns are driving the, the conversation and how to navigate the reality as is in the most effective way. So we have that language of effectivity. But one question that has emerged in the literature is that the whole conversation of religion and peace building has focused on to the degree to which, well, first of all, there is a question about how religion relates to violence and conflict and then how it can be 
function or instrumentalize in a way that will promote peace building. And the question that is usually focused on is a question of religion and direct forms of violence. What is in the background and not so much central to the scholarly conversation is how, and perhaps Rashid, you, you've thought a lot about this in your activism and what you just described in South Africa. Where do we bring conversations about how religion relates to other forms of violence, cultural violence, questions of racism, even the deep histories and legacies of colonialism, as well as violence internally within the religious traditions, violence against women, homophobia, sexism, because, for instance, many um, eco-feminist theologians say unless you engage, one engages with the violence and the domination within the structure, the very structure of religious tradition, then you don't really engage in peace building and deep concerns with justice. Maybe, Rashid, you can. Yeah, so I, I think this is a major challenge and a problem, and particularly since we are coming at the question of interreligious dialogue from a peace building lens, one of the key defining features of uh, Peace building, peace studies is that of structural violence and positive peace. So this is a critical question uh, coming from that particular view. Uh, the first is to acknowledge that uh, we are all have inherited deep patriarchal baggage. Uh, of course, it's not unique to religion. It uh, across permeates entire societies. How, but you know, acknowledgement, and then how do we deal with it? How do we identify these power structural? imbalances that uh, marginalizes women, gender orientations, people of different uh, pigmentations of skin and uh, economic wealth positions. So it's, it's a, a complex. And that's where I would say comes in the question. You know, I've spoken about the dialogue of spirituality, dialogue of action, the dialogue of life. This is where the dialogue of theology comes in. Because really deep in our theologies is where the patriarchy is embedded, and that informs. And unfortunately, the kind of dialogue, and that usually happens at uh, dialogue of theology. When we think about interreligion, we think about all of these big uh, bishops and imams and rabbis coming together, but they never really deal with these deep theological questions that contributes towards gender oppression, towards racism, towards economic inequality, and, and so on. And I think I am very hopeful with the, the new papacy of uh, Pope Francis in 2013. He's brought some of those issues onto the agenda. I mean, even the question of environmental justice is a great lens. So I'm very hopeful in that regard. However, I think that we are just at the beginning phases, unfortunately. In my own Islamic tradition, I have called it the gender jihad, a jihad, a struggle for the affirmation of the full dignity and all of the rights of women and people who are other people who are marginalized for whatever reason. Building on that, it could well be that tackling some of these issues is something that really needs to be happening at the intra-religious level, you know, as the effective place to start 
those conversations are really digging deep into one's own religious traditions. And it's kind of in those, in that way, that the connection can be made between violence in the home, violence based on gender, and violence in the society. And this is something that we saw in some work that Sierra has done in East Timor around gender-based violence, domestic violence, and really engaging both the Catholic tradition as well as the indigenous cultural traditions and teachings to sort of address these issues and the ways in which some of those who have been most closely involved in those efforts of, of really looking back at the interpretations of tradition and what that has to say about how men and women relate to each other in the household, finding in that place a connection to the broader levels of societal traumatization by decades of violence and conflict on the broader scale and sort of recognizing that that truly peace begins at home to the extent that if we're not addressing peace in the home, there's not going to be peace in the society, but also the level of conflict and violence in the society has sort of pervaded how people interact together. And so I think really digging deep into those religious traditions is where that needs to happen. And sometimes maybe that starts intra-religiously. I think it's important to recognize that some of these things, deeply structural, cultural factors, that are difficult to change and will take time to change. And we have to, we need to recognize that. And in recognizing that also, we need to see that the change must start from within the individuals who are in that context rather than from imposed. So in other words, whatever academic theories that we have must see things from the perspectives of the people who are involved. I'll give the example of uh, Ghana where at one point they proposed uh, the domestic violence law you know, bill. So the minister for uh, responsible, who is a Muslim and a woman, was going around the country trying to solicit women's interest in this. In Tamale, where I live, which is a predominantly Muslim town, she was chased out by women. Because they told her, you don't experience what we experience, so you can't tell us what we should be looking for in, in this law. So unless we are able to see things from the perspectives of those who live those situations, we can... Think of all the ways of making the world a beautiful place, but it's not just going to make the transformations are going to come. So it has to be an internalized way. It has to be a slow process of self-conversion from the individual to the society to the community before you can now make the change actually happen. Otherwise, externalized transposition might not get it there. I don't think I'm convincing you, but that's what I feel strongly. One might say that uh, what you're articulating really um, highlight the the important tension between theory and practice with an understanding that theory in and of itself is practice, so challenging that binaries of theory mm. and practice. Mm. Well, I have um, uh, one more question perhaps Neil is um, best positioned to, to, to reflect on. I alluded to earlier the deep historical questions about injustice and the role of um, religious institutions in, in violence. I'm thinking specifically of uh, the role of the institution of the church in in colonialism. And since you work for a Catholic organization, Catholic Relief Services, to what degree those deep legacies, are violent legacies of um, religious institution of the church's participation in the colonial implementing and facilitating colonialism come into the conversation, the um, self-analysis, and also what does it mean for CRS to participate or oversee and work with partners on interreligious peace building work? Mm -hmm. That's a really tough and really important and good question. 
I think perhaps there is a tendency to sort of fast forward over that history and to refer more more regularly to the more recent decades of history in which the Catholic Church in many of the contexts uh, where we work in formerly, you know, in former colonial context, the history that the Catholic Church has of having been a life-giving force through its provision of social services, of education, of health care. And so I think there's much more of a tendency to sort of look to that more recent history and try to draw on that history as kind of a springboard into effective roles in peace building, rather than digging deeper into the, the longer history of oppression and violence and exploitation with which the church was part and parcel. And so I think it is a challenge that requires wrestling with both with CRS and with our, our local partners, but it's one that doesn't come up as much in the face of sort of the current pressing needs and the more recent history. So thank you for putting that question on the table. Could other, do you want to reflect on this as well? Yeah, you know, the, I used to have one cardinal who said the Catholic Church is a holy and sinning church. A holy and sinning church in, in the sense that, yes, it's made mistakes, but it's also learned how to correct those mistakes and has been able to, to, to champion that. And as Nell was saying, in the eyes of people who see the church right now, even if they remember the history, they see it's making an effort to make that change around and to acknowledge its mistakes and, and move forward. Plus the fact that uh, in most places where you have violent conflicts uh, around, the presence of the church is often the sustaining power, a source of solace for everybody. So you go to Central African Republic, for instance, when there was a, a, a void in the political system, it was the Catholic Church that came up and said, okay, look, something needs to be done. And it was a rallying point for everyone, Muslims and Christians and, and so forth, to say, okay, hey, we have a leadership here that will lead us out of the trouble. And in fact, it culminated when the Pope visited, and everyone in Central Africa was say, oh, when the Pope visited, and when the Pope visited, you know. And I met an imam who was opposed to the peace-building efforts of the religious leaders. And he says, the happiest moment was when the Pope visited, and he came to my mosque in uh, PK5, and uh, I rode in his uh, automobile, and he's, they see this as a unifying force. So in that sense, they tend to say, okay, even if you made mistakes in the past, but you are trying to rectify, you are trying to correct those mistakes, and therefore they see you as a more relevant institution than resting in the past. Yeah, I, I do think this is a very critical question, you know, the, the issue of deep history and the healing of memories. A number of conflicts are actually animated by uh, these unfinished, uh, you know, memories of the past. And I think it's important that we don't romanticize our history, that we do acknowledge that uh, may, we may believe that we have divine inspiration and divine beliefs, but we are frail weak human beings who historically our ancestors have committed atrocities and how do we deal with it? I, I was just back for the very first time and I've traveled a number of places, but to Turkey and I visited Istanbul. Just a week ago, I walked into Hagia Sophia and I was deeply troubled that this great you know, church of the Eastern Constantinople Orthodox was turned into a mosque. mosque. And I could see, you know, the artificial Islamic features behind, beneath this was the Virgin Mary and, and, and Christian symbols. 
as I moved out of the gate, I found there was a saying of the Prophet, that kind of prediction that uh, Muslims would conquer Constantinople or Rome at the time. But he didn't say that when they conquered, they should turn this church into a mosque. Fortunately, under uh, secular Kamal Ataturk, it was turned into a museum. And then just 100 meters away, you find a blue mosque. So you've turned the church into a mosque, and then 100 meters further, you build another a mosque. And I felt deeply troubled. So we all carry this baggage. How do we then kind of make some kind of restitution for those acts of atrocity that were committed in our history, and unless and until we do not deal with it, it will continue to haunt us into our contemporary and present realities. Right, thank you. I have one final question. It relates whether to the question of uh, instrumentalizing religious actors, religious institutions, that this whole question concerning co-optation that was raised a couple of times in the course of our conversation. So in the past few decades, all of a sudden we see a shift, at least in the context of the global north, a complete disregard of the religious factor, the factor of religion in international relations and global engagement to an interest in religious actors. So we see programs develop, different kind of programs that carry that word partnership, partner, partnering with uh, religious leaders and traditional leaders and, and various programs for the global engagement with religion. Some call it the post-secular phase of international relations. And a lot of it is driven by the question of securitizing religion. So it marks, when we talk about religion, we mark one particular religious tradition, Islam. It's a, so it's a marked category. So I wanted to invite you to reflect on the question of instrument, instrumentalizing religious actors and to what degree a lot of the conversation about even religion and peace building, not only religion and violence, is driven by what I call the securitizing discourse and uh, orientalism, Islamophobia, and so forth. That's a wonderful question. I want to bring it to my own context as a Muslim. Whilst we are very happy that interreligious uh, peace building is now become popular, yeah. <laughs> but this is a sinister development that it's being co-opted by powerful elites in order to legitimate the status quo. From the Muslim perspective, I'll give you two examples. There is one of the most powerful currently interreligious global efforts, which is based in Vienna in Austria, called the King Abdulaziz Center. <laughs> for interreligious intercultural dialogue. It's been there since 2012. And five months ago, the Austrian parliament voted to close it down in response to a very young man who was uh, maybe 13 years old, participated in the Arab Spring in Saudi Arabia, was arrested. And now five years later, at the age of 13, he's still in prison facing the death penalty. Right, And they were saying, what is the connection between this? Another example is this year, the Pope visited the United Arab Emirates. And from the, other, from the perspective of, of uh, Catholics, and it's wonderful. But from the perspective of people on the ground, you know, it's legitimating United Arab Emirates, who've been, in fact, involved with a war in Yemen, slaughtering thousands of Shiite Muslims, and in fact, wanting to call 2019 the year of tolerance and using interreligious peace building to legitimate yeah. monarchy, authoritarianism, and oppressive rules. This is what's happening 
you know, throughout the Muslim world and it's a response to the legitimate, since 2011, clamoring of ordinary Muslims throughout the Middle East for democracy. And the sad reality is that in the West, people are saying, what's wrong with these Muslims? You know, they, they want autocratic. They don't want autocratic rule. The autocratic rule is in fact imposed upon them through these sinister developments. And unfortunately, I give you two examples, the KCIT and the UAE. And now they're in fact using the new Pope and the Vatican. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm not sure that he is aware of this. He's not got a, a good a long history of interreligious dialogue, but at least his advisors, I think I would blame them. They know exactly what they are doing in collaborating with the UAE, with uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia in pushing this new kind of instrumentalization of religion to legitimate the status quo and monarchy in the Middle East. Sure. I mean, I, I can say in many of the countries where CRS is operating, one of the deeply problematic aspects of this co-optation of religious actors for a security agenda has been the extent to which it both, that agenda both seeks to sort of designate who is, which religious leaders are, should be lifted up, should be supported, should be legitimated in the eyes of the international community, which doesn't necessarily doesn't have anything to do with the extent to which they actually have legitimate authority and le credibility within their own community. So that's deeply problematic in and of itself. But the other thing that's problematic about it is the extent to which that sort of favoring of certain religious voices over others ends up damaging the security of those religious leaders themselves and of their followers because of the extent to which they're seen to be, you know, they're seen to be tools of and puppets of a Western security agenda actually puts a target on their backs. And so it's very problematic because, of course, when we're seeking to engage in interreligious peace building, often those that we're seeking to work with are those who are open to interreligious peace building. We're not necessarily always going all the way to the margins of those conversations, but yet then it becomes sort of complicated by this overlay of these other agendas and um, the extent to which that makes it even harder sometimes for these religious leaders and actors to have space to move to build bridges of peace. I think in, in that dialogue, we need also to take into consideration the role of the press and for that matter, self-setting interests. Talking about instrumentalization of religion, you you find out that in some, in some of the conflicts that have been described as religious, the ordinary people in the ground will be the first to tell this has nothing to do with religion. But it's the press that has labeled it and championed it and made it look like it is religious. But at the ground, at the grounds, Muslims are protecting Christians, Christians are protecting uh, Muslims, and are making sure that they create the environment that you were talking about Ubuntu, that we are all in this and we need to, to sort it out. But the international press makes it look like it's a religious conflict. It's the Muslims that are killing the Christians and the Christians that are killing Muslims. And I take, for instance, in the Central African Republic, when we had a, an engagement with the Seleka and the Antibalaka, they would tell you, look, we are sitting here and then the French government uh, soldiers come in and say, well, you know, we call this other person here who was doing this to the Christians and we're handing it over to you. And they'll do the same, exactly the same thing on the other side. So you then have a situation where uh, these guys are caught in between. And in fact, at the end of the engagements with them, you say, look, we need a space where the anti-Balaka and the anti uh, Seleka will meet together and see who is our common enemy. The enemy is not Muslim or Christian. The enemy is from outside. 
And that's what we need to recognize, that sometimes they, these internal, externally imposed perceptions that actually create and generate and sustain the conflict because it serves as an interest. You've been listening to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.